This is Connected to Chicago, a look at the top stories of the week with the people making, covering, and talking about the news of the day. Now, Connected to Chicago. And welcome to Connected to Chicago. The three-year running saga of Jussie Smollett has come to a conclusion, at least for now, after a judge Thursday sentenced the former Empire actor to win 150 days behind bars and 30 months of probation. Our guest this week, former federal prosecutor Pat Brady. Thanks for hopping on, Pat. Uh, it's great to be on. How you been? Been good. So let me ask you this. First off, what do you think about the sentence? Is it enough? Not enough? Too much? I think it was perfect. I think exactly what I, uh, I kind of thought he would get. I think it sends the right mm-hmm. message that the conduct that Mr. Smulet engaged in was harmful, was dangerous, and deserves punishment, uh, along with the 30 months probation and the restitution. I think Judge Lynn really did a tremendous job with the way he handled the whole trial, the way he handled the sentencing hearing, and the ultimate disposition. I, I think it was absolutely perfect. Well, Jesse's uh, lawyers yesterday kind of, well, afterwards, right, after the sentencing kind of came out and uh, were not very happy with uh, Judge Lynn's words to Smollett in the courtroom. But you expect a judge during these sentencing hearings to explain why he is imposing a sentence, right? Yeah, and that a lot of what the judge and even the lawyers on the defense side were doing was laying the groundwork for whatever appeal there's going to be. So a lot of what Judge Lynn said regarding what he was thinking and doing what he did, the appellate court's going to want to know why he did what he did. And the words were harsh, but the reality is they were true. Everything he said, and I watched this case closely, and the things he said about his arrogance and the damage he did to the city and all the other things were true, and that's what he took into consideration in imposing the sentence. I thought the way he laid it out, it was a textbook way to do a sentencing hearing. I found it interesting that some of the arguments that they had made in court, uh, Smollett's uh, attorneys, I guess, would it be to to drop the case or a reason why he shouldn't be uh, sentenced or serve any time at all, saying uh, basically that, you know, the jury had already been influenced by the time, you know, there was so much uh, media attention surrounding this. Is is that kind of going to be the angle when they go for an appeal or what the judge did yesterday? Does that make all that moot? Well, here's what they were doing yesterday. There there were two things that happened yesterday. There was a motion for new trial, which happens in every criminal conviction case, and then they moved to the sentencing hearing. The motion for new trial, they laid out the things or the reasons legally they think that this case should either be thrown out because there was a lack of evidence and the judge should find him not guilty and or there should be a new trial. So everything that the defense did there they did for purposes of perfect either to get the judge to throw it out or and or perfecting their appeal, meaning all this stuff has to be brought up at the motion for a new trial or it's deemed okay. waived in the appellate court. So sorry for the long legal explanation, but that's what that was all about. Is that typical? Because what do they take oh, about yeah, totally. two hours, I think, alone on that? No, yeah. it typically it takes about 20 minutes. It takes about five minutes. But okay. as Judge Lynn stated, he had volumes of paper and motions and filings that the defense had filed and they're entitled to do that. But the reality is now all these issues have been so litigated that the appellate court in reviewing this, and they give the judge a lot of discretion, the trial judge, all this has been litigated time and time again. So as as nice a job as they did laying out their arguments, I think it made it less and less possible that any of this is going to be reversed by the appellate court. 
Well, and one of the things I guess that they were arguing was as defense attorneys, they should have had a chance to question the potential jurors. And I guess in, in reading up on, on the story, that's some judges let that happen. Some judges are the ones that, that ask the questions. Is that right? What what do you usually see in a courtroom setting? Yeah, and the, the bigger question is is who's responsible for making that decision, and it's up to the judge. They just have to, it has to be a fair process. And clearly, in this case, and I watched a lot of the voir dire, he bent over backwards to be fair to both sides. And there were all kinds of uh, issues raised during this. But to answer your question, yeah, you can do it either way. I've had it where the judge asked the questions, and uh, I've had it where I got to ask the questions. Typically, uh, so again, it's up to the judge, but it's, it can be different in every courtroom, but it's perfectly appropriate either way. But, I mean, is that something that someone would consider, you know, as they go forward with an appeal? Would that be part of uh, Jesse Smollett's attorney's argument? Yeah, whatever they argued yesterday will be in their appeal. But in my opinion, it's not going anywhere. Okay, so so they were just dotting the I's and crossing the T's to make sure they have, for lack of better terms, the ammunition when they do the appeal, basically, right? Yeah, Yeah, they have to raise it now or it's been waived me and they can't raise it in the appellate court generally so that all that has to be in a motion for new trial they did it in a dramatic fashion and it was fascinating to watch and they were great legal arguments and both sides were fantastic but it was more a process for appeal than it was really gonna affect anything that happened yesterday what about um, your thoughts on this argument that there was no valid legal grounds to appoint a special prosecutor to begin with, that, that this was all handled already, um, there was no reason to, to put uh, Dan Webb in motion? Uh, it kind of doesn't sit well with me, the way they've well, played that out. It doesn't make sense either. It, 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 it's an idiotic argument. They they just dismissed the case. They and the, the, what they, they never mentioned it, but they're kind of trying to imply that, you know, Jeopardy, you can't be twice tried twice for the same offense, right? It's called double jeopardy. Right. But that doesn't that doesn't hit until in a bench trial, I mean a trial heard by a judge till the first witness is sworn or a jury trial when the first juror is sworn. This is they just dismissed the case, the state's attorney's office, and that's what led to the investigation and the funny business that had gone on in the state's attorney's office and, and Judge Tuman, one of the most highly respected judges in probably the history of Cook County said, hey, something's wrong here. we got to put a special investigator in there. So Dan Webb came in, and then they went back to the, the grand jury and, and indicted Justice Smollett again. So there was absolutely nothing improper with that. They don't like it because, you know, Kim Fox messed this up from the get-go, and it was good for them, uh, and it was bad when Dan Webb came in. But I think justice was served yesterday, and the right thing was done. So let me ask you this. If you were to, uh, a betting man, where's the appeal going to go? I mean, is nowhere. it it's, it's not nowhere? Going <laughs> no, yeah. I, I don't think so. Particularly since, as I was mentioning before, every game, everything was so litigated and so explained, and they just weren't compelling arguments. Maybe, maybe you get a, a an appellate court panel that sees it differently, but I didn't see any glaring errors. It was a pretty clean trial. In, in my experience, the better the attorneys and the better the judge in the courtroom, and we had the top of the top here, the cleaner the trial is going because everybody knows – how to do it and how far they can push it and what's going to work and what's not going to work. And the the judge was fantastic. So I I don't, I just don't see it going anywhere. Well, and as the wheels of justice turn kind of slow anyways, um, by the time an appeal would come up, he would have served his time. I would imagine he'd be out. He'll be out before the next status date. I mean, he's, (laughs) he's going to be out in 
75 days. He'll do day for good day for day good time. I think that's still the calculation. So, you know, he'll, he'll be out in probably 75 days. I mean, so an appeal at that point is just vindication, looking for that aspect of it? Yeah, and maybe not having to pay the restitution or in, in clearing your name. But, you know, an appeal, rarely or not often do they outright reverse the conviction. What they do is they find an error, and then they send it back for another trial. And that's the last thing I imagine he wants. So yeah. I think a lot of the noise we heard yesterday from the defense attorneys was more noise than it was legal or practical reality. One of the things I want to ask you about, too, because I don't understand why she keeps butting her head into these things. Kim Fox, her statements yesterday in, in an op-ed saying that uh, Smollett faced a kangaroo prosecution. Dan Webb, probably one of the top former U.S. attorneys uh, here, uh, very well respected. He's a good attorney. What do you say about her comments? Is she kind of like stepping over the line there? Yeah, and prosecutors really are, are supposed to keep their mouth shut when they do this. They are supposed to be you know, ind- independent uh, arbiters of justice, not make comments like that. In fact, there are rules and ethics rules that say you're not supposed to do that. But I think the bigger problem for those of us that live in Cook County is we have the worst prosecutor in the United States in the state's attorney's office. She's horrible. She doesn't charge cases. She doesn't get along with the police. She loses cases. She screws cases up like Jesse Smollett to do political favors. She is without question. I was a prosecutor for 10 years. and I worked in the state's attorney's office before I was a federal prosecutor. I will tell anybody she's the worst prosecutor in the country. And that that editorial she wrote yesterday just makes me think that she's so removed from reality in her approach and her recognition of what's gone on in her own backyard. I mean, it's not working. Uh, this, this, this is we're a crime haven now, and part of the problem is we have a horrible prosecutor. So, I think probably her writing that is more for her to set herself up to go work for a think tank and not run again than actually get elected again. Mm, interesting. Okay. Yeah, I don't know if she's got uh, as much support as as she initially had. Um, I haven't seen any any numbers or anything, but it just seems that a lot of people are kind of questioning uh, her handling because, I mean, crime in the city is just, in the county, has gotten out of control. They had a Wild West shootout on the west side before Christmas. Remember that? Yeah. All these guys shooting each other, and she goes, well, we're not going to charge anybody because they were, quote, unquote, mutual combatants. Okay, you're not going to charge them with attempted murder, but you could charge all of them with gun offenses, right? All the guns, I guarantee you, are illegal. But she just doesn't do it, and it's some weird, woke, left-wing notion that there's no such thing as a criminal. And, and the bad part about that is, you, we all know, there are victims in these crimes, and that's her job, too, is to represent victims. I get that there needs to be reforms in the criminal justice system, for sure. But her approach to this is just it, it should be offensive to anybody that – actually lives, works, and follows the law here, that she doesn't enforce the law, and that's her job. If she doesn't want the job, then she should step down, but she is the worst prosecutor in the country. Well, and she also seems to blame everybody else. She's blaming the police oh, or, yeah. yeah. Back to the Smollett thing, just yeah. for a second. When she said, quote-unquote, that she recused herself, remember that? And yeah. she wasn't involved in a decision. She, there's a statute that, lays out exactly what she's supposed to do to recuse herself. It's a new statute that she didn't follow any of it. She just said, I recuse myself, which meant nothing. So the whole, her whole handling of this was a big fat lie and a big mess up. And this is how we got, you know, Jesse Smollett for three years instead of for, you know, three months. 
Yeah. So for her to now write an op-ed or an editorial to the Sun-Times saying that miscarriage of justice and all this, just a, everybody should be offended by it. What what is that process if if she did need to remove herself from from the situation? There, so there's a procedural thing to follow. There's a law. <laughs> well, yeah. There's there's actually a law yeah. that says she's supposed to go to the chief judge and request the recusal or say that she needs to recuse. It's she can't just on I her see. own say, "Ah, eh, I'm out of this." And okay. she misled everyone. <laughs> she made public statements about why I've recused myself. First of all, she didn't do it right. Secondly, she didn't actually do it. She still participated in it from what we learned from the investigative report. It was just a you – know, that's an important job, that, that office. And we've had some good state's attorneys. And, again, there needs to be reforms, certainly, and not everybody had always been treated fairly, but she, she needs to go. So let's go back to the phone call from – it was Michelle Obama's aide, right, or former aide, makes this yeah. phone call to – I think to Kim Fox, right? Um, how is a person like Kim Fox or someone in that position? How do you handle those phone calls? Uh, I think first of all, you don't take them. Okay. Uh, <laughs> you know, you have your assistant or your first assistant go, "What's the nature of the call?" And if they're calling about Jesse Smith, say, "I don't talk about pending cases." It's it, conflicts of interest and, and bad behavior. They're, they're, it's not that difficult to figure out that someone's calling you. They're calling you to, to try to influence you, and you shouldn't take the call. Just, I'm not taking the call. And, and if you do take the call, you just say, listen, I'm going to do what the people elected me do, which is enforce the law like it should be enforced, and that's it, but not the way she handled it. I, I don't know what the nature of the conversation was completely, but she shouldn't even take the call. That's interesting because, yeah, I would, I would think that that's kind of, I don't know, politics 101 or prosecutor 101. I mean – it's something that she should have known better. It, it politics maybe one hundred and one in Illinois. Maybe it's five hundred and five in Illinois. But, <laughs> but, uh, but as a prosecutor and as an attorney, as an officer of the court, as a representative of the people in court, you should know better. This is not complicated stuff. Don't take the call. I saw judges get in trouble back in my era for doing things just like that. And it's 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 improper. It's arguably illegal. And she shouldn't have done it. And she shouldn't have done a lot of what she did in this case. Well, and so that would lead me to the next question is, would there be any action taken against Kim Fox by someone or would the chief judge uh, uh, reprimand her? Is, is there any recourse for her handling of this case overall? Uh, there hasn't been. And the report's been out for about a year. So it's likely that nothing's coming. I, I'm surprised there wasn't a attorney registration disciplinary committee be filed against her but um it hasn't been um, so I, I would say no at this point when it comes to him being in the cook county jail i haven't seen anything yet but someone with his level of recognition is he going to be isolated is he going to be kept uh, away from other inmates or do you know how they would handle something like that someone of of his status well, I just know from what's happened in the, the past, yes is the answer, short answer. But I also know that they said in the paper that they were going to put him into the medical facility, at least for initial evaluation. I have a lot of confidence in Sheriff Dart. He's a, a good guy. Uh, I mean, he's a law and order guy, but he's an empathetic guy, and, and he's smart. And he, will, I'm sure, will make certain that uh, Jesse Smollett, however unpleasant Cook County Jail is, that he will be in a place where he will not be in any danger. Yeah, I just asked the question simply because of, as 
Jesse was walking out, right, uh, you know, raising his hand and saying, you know, I'm not suicidal, and if something happens to me, you know, I didn't do it. And, yeah, it is a rough place. I, I just don't know. Is this another grasp at attention? Oh, absolutely. I, well, I, I, I'm sure his lawyers are just like, Jesse, shut up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, just shut up. Yeah. But, you know, he's an actor, and he's a good actor, and he was playing to the crowd, and he's playing to his crowd. I'm sure he's trying to incite some kind of public groundswell of support that he's somehow a victim. But, uh, you know, I, I think right now Jesse's about as popular in Chicago as Aaron Rodgers. I mean, it's just right. – I, <laughs> I don't think it works. I mean, what he did and the damage he caused to the city, potential damage that he caused, the people that live and work and care about the place understand exactly what he did. I guess the last question I got for you would be as far as what does this do? Does this set an example? And who does it set the example for? Uh, not Because, you know, again, you, you look at one side and, and, you know, Kim Fox certainly, it, you know, can take some blame for, for how this all went down. But Jesse Smollett basically, and the judge said it, coordinated this whole thing and did it uh, to, you know, try and further himself and uh, people have sympathy for him and, uh, you know, try and get a better deal with Fox on a show. Who does this send a message to or does it send a message? I'm not sure if it's a message sending thing other than complete idiotic behavior. And, and, and maybe I take that back. Hopefully it sends a message to people. The message that we got from Judge Lynn and I thought we were effectively yesterday is we do take hate crimes seriously here. Those mm -hmm. are the worst types of crimes. And to fake one, yeah, you're going to be punished for it. So maybe the silver lining if there is one that people now recognize what a hate crime is maybe people didn't really know what it was before maybe that's the silver lining and you know if it sends a message to the hollywood folks not to come here and do stupid stuff maybe that's a good message too <laughs> okay <laughs> yeah we'll leave it there with the former federal prosecutor pat brady thanks so much for hopping on today okay anytime see ya thanks up next the president imposing more restrictions on russia you're listening to Connected to Chicago on WLF. This is Connected to Chicago. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com. As the situation in Ukraine continues to unfold, in Washington, President Joe Biden revoked favored nation status to Russia and announced on Friday that the U.S. will dramatically downgrade its trade status with the country and ban imports of Russian seafood, booze, and diamonds. Here's the president's comments. I've just spoken for some time with President Zelensky of Ukraine. I told him, as I have each and every time we've spoken, the United States stands with the people of Ukraine and they're bravely, as they bravely fight to defend their country. And they are doing that. And as Putin continues his merciless assault, the United States and our allies and partners continue to work in lockstep to ramp up the economic pressures on Putin and to further isolate Russia in the global stage. Later today, together with other NATO allies in the G7, Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, the United Kingdom, as well as the European Union, we're going to jointly announce several new steps to squeeze Putin and hold him more, even more accountable for his aggression against Ukraine. And I want to speak to a few of those points today. First, each of our nations is going to take steps to deny most favored nation status to Russia. A most favored nation status designation means two countries have agreed to trade with each other under the best possible terms. Low tariffs, few barriers of trade, and the highest possible imports allowed. 
In the United States, we call this permanent normal trade relations, PNTR, but it's the same thing. Revoking PNTR for Russia is going to make it harder for Russia to do business with the United States. And doing it in unison with other nations to make up half of the global economy will be another crushing blow to the Russian economy. It's already suffering very badly from our sanctions. And I want to thank Speaker Pelosi, Leader McCarthy, Leader Schumer and McConnell, and Senators Wyden and Crapo, Representatives Neal and Brady, for their bipartisan leadership on this in the Congress. I would like to offer a special thanks to Speaker Pelosi, who's been a strong advocate for, for revoking PNTR and who agreed to hold off on that in the House until I could line up all of our key allies to keep us in complete unison. Unity among our allies is critically important, as you all know, from, and from my perspective, at least. Many issues divide us in Washington, but standing for democracy in Ukraine, pushing Russia's aggression should not be one of those issues. The free world is coming together to confront Putin. Our two parties here at home are leading the way. And with that bipartisan cooperation, I'm looking forward to signing into law the bill revoking PNTR, which is, again, most people think of it as most favored nation status. We're also taking a further step of banning imports of goods from several signature sectors of the Russian economy, including seafoods, vodka, and diamonds. And we're going to continue to squeeze Putin the G7 will seek to deny Russia the ability to borrow from leading multinational institutions, such as the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank. Putin is an aggressor. He is the aggressor. And Putin must pay the price. He cannot pursue a war that threatens the very foundations, which he's doing, the very foundations of international peace and stability, and then ask for financial help from the international community. The G7 is also stepping up pressure on corrupt Russian billionaires. We're adding new names to the list of oligarchs and their families that we're targeting. And we're increasing coordination among the G7 countries to target and capture their ill-begotten gains. They support Putin. They steal from the Russian people. And they seek to hide their money in our countries. They're part of a, that kleptocracy that exists in Moscow. And they must share in the pain of these sanctions. And while we're going after these uh, their super yachts and their vacation homes and worth hundreds of million, millions of dollars, we're also going to make it harder for them to buy high-end products manufactured in our country. We're banning the export of luxury, luxury goods to Russia. They're also the latest steps we're taking, but uh, they're not the last steps we're going to take. And as I said, at the beginning of all these steps, we're going to hit Putin harder because the United States and our closest allies and partners are acting in unison. The totality of our sanctions and export controls is crushing the Russian economy. The ruble has lost more than half its value. They tell me it takes about 200 rubles to equal $1 these days. Moscow stock exchange has been closed for fully for two weeks because they know the moment it opens, it will probably collapse. Credit rating agencies has downgraded Russia's government to junk status, its economy to junk status. The list of businesses, international corporations leaving Russia is growing by the day. We're also continuing to close uh, corporations with allies and partners to make sure that the close cooperation we continue to have, the Ukrainian people are, are able to defend their own nation. The United States has sent more than $1 billion in security assistance to Ukraine over the last year. 
including anti-armor and anti-air capabilities, taking out tanks and planes and helicopters, with new shipments arriving every day. We, the United States, are also facilitating significant shipments of security assistance from our allies and partners to Ukraine. And the humanitarian front, we're working closely with the U.N. and humanitarian organizations to support the people of Ukraine who have been displaced by the violence in Ukraine. We're providing, we're providing tens of thousands of tons of human supplies, or, or, excuse me, humanitarian supplies, food, water, medicines, coming via truck and train every single day. Yesterday in Poland, Vice President Harris, Harris announced an additional $53 million and additional humanitarian support to Ukraine. That brings the total humanitarian assistance to $107 million in just two weeks. We've joined this effort by more, with more than 30 other countries who are providing hundreds of millions more. And last night, to their great credit, the Congress passed a bipartisan spending bill that included an additional $13.6 billion in new assistance to the Ukrainian people. I look forward to signing that immediately. And I also want to be clear, though. We will make sure Ukraine has weapons to defend against an invading Russian force. We will. We will send money and food and aid to save the Ukrainian people. And I will welcome Ukrainian refugees. We should welcome them here with open arms if they need access. And we're going to provide more support for Ukraine. We're going to continue to stand together with our allies in Europe and send unmistakable message. We'll defend every single inch of NATO territory with the full might of the united and galvanized NATO. We will not fight a war against Russia in Ukraine. Direct confrontation between NATO and Russia is World War III, something we must strive to prevent. But we already know Putin's war against Ukraine will never be a victory. He hoped to dominate Ukraine without a fight. He failed. He hoped to fracture European resolve. He failed. He hoped to weaken the transatlantic alliance. He failed. He hoped to split apart American democracies in terms of our positions. He failed. The American people are united. The world is united. And we stand with the people of Ukraine. We will not let autocrats and would-be emperors dictate the direction of the world. Democracies are rising to meet this moment, rallying the world to the side of peace and the side of security. We're showing our strength, and we will not falter. God bless all of you. God bless Ukraine, and God bless our troops. The White House has said that, that Russia may use chemical weapons or create a false flag operation to use them. What evidence have you seen showing that? And would the U.S. have a military response if Putin does launch a chemical weapons attack? I'm not going to speak about the intelligence, but you but uh, Russia would pay a severe price to use chemicals. And again, the president on Friday morning announcing a ban on some Russian imports and saying there at the end that Russia would pay a price for using chemical weapons. Coming up, our Kim Gordon talks to Dan Lurie, chief of economic policy with the mayor's office, about initiatives to help struggling families. You're listening to Connected to Chicago on WLS. This is Connected to Chicago, a look at the top stories of the week with the people making, covering, and talking about the news of the day. 
Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com. It's been two years since Mayor Lightfoot held a summit to end poverty in Chicago. In February, she announced three initiatives to help those struggling to make ends meet. Joining me today is Dan Lurie, Chief of Policy in the Mayor's Office. Dan, welcome to Connected to Chicago. Thanks for having me. We're glad you're here. So let's start with the monthly cash assistance program. Can you explain who's eligible and how the program will work? Uh, so who eligible participants are anyone who's living in Chicago who's over 18 and has experienced uh, economic hardship due to COVID, which is a large number of people, of course. And we, we, we are building that intentionally large to try to capture uh, as many people from across the city uh, as possible. And so did your strategy change due to COVID at all? Because I know the mayor, you know, when she was first elected, obviously poverty was one of her main goals of, you know, ending poverty and helping those who um, have have problems paying the bills. So did the strategy change at all when the pandemic began? Uh, in some ways, yes. Uh, so th- this program in particular is is uh, is funded by uh, what President Biden and congressional Democrats gave to us and other cities across the country, the American Recovery Plan dollars. Those dollars obviously uh, didn't exist when the mayor uh, hosted the STEP Summit in February of 2020, uh, and those dollars are directly tied to COVID impacts. So in, in the, the most direct sense, yes, we are we are having this cash program, this assistance program, because uh, of, uh, of COVID. Uh, however, uh, the kind of economic hardship, the poverty, the intergenerational poverty in particular, that is concentrated in black Chicago, as well as the broader economic hardship that cuts across the city and cuts across race, um, is, uh, is in many ways exacerbated by COVID. But, but there, COVID did not reveal new uh, levels of, uh, of, um, of poverty. It made what was already there uh, much worse. And so this program is, is, uh, was a result of, uh, kind of COVID-directed impacts, but it is uh, something we wanted to do and we're thinking about doing for a long time uh, in advance of COVID. Cash, as you, I think you may know or you may find out, this is not a new approach. This is something that governments around the world have been using and philanthropies for a long time to reduce poverty. So it's tried and true. We know that people who are experiencing poverty are uh, experiencing it because they don't have enough money. And so giving them money uh, allows them uh, to, to get out of poverty. And that's exactly what the mayor is trying to do here. And so let me just to clarify, this money is strictly for residents' personal use or can people apply it to businesses? It is for residents uh, and, and family households uh, uh, for individual personal use, not for businesses. And who will make the decision on who receives the money and um, how will people be notified? And do you see that yep. this will be expanding in the future? Yeah, so uh, I'll take a couple. I'll kick those in order. So uh, it'll be a lottery. Uh, so it will. Uh, there's not going to be one person, myself or the mayor or anyone in city government, saying yes or no to individual decisions, up or down. There'll be a lottery, and this is similar to how we've run a lot of our uh, our programs the, um, that 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 uh, give money like this directly to folks. We anticipate there to be much more demand than we will have money for. We know we can we can fund 5,000 families for uh, 5,000 households for 12 months uh, at $500 uh, per per month. Uh, so we have a finite amount of money here, and it's a finite amount of time. It's a 12-month period of time, uh, it's a, and that, thus it's a pilot. 
to the question of what would happen, what happens after, uh, we're in conversation now uh, on two fronts. One, we are working with the University of Chicago's Inclusive Economy Lab to evaluate this program so that we can determine exactly how it will help people in real time and then use that evidence to make the case to council that um, uh, that there is a there's good reason to continue programs like this. We don't know, you know exactly how that will play out uh, in subsequent budget years. It is a very expensive project, um, uh, and so we want to make sure that these dollars are, are not only helping the families, but that they're changing how the city government invests directly in people. How we work with uh, with nonprofit institutions and philanthropy to make sure that these dollars get stretched, uh, and that we're actually helping people the way they need. Uh, we think we will. We're confident we will, but we want to make sure that's the case. And then with that evidence, we'll sit down with council and figure out uh, exactly how uh, departments across the city uh, government can uh, continue this kind of approach to, to investing directly in families and individuals. Just because for the sake of time, let's move on to the other initiatives coming this spring. So can you tell us a little bit about the Domestic Worker Relief Fund and the Clear Path Relief Fund? Yeah, so the Domestic Worker Relief Fund is, is actually targeted, as the name suggests, to care workers. Uh, I think the mayor has been uh, championing this, um, the work that we've been doing with care workers uh, for a long time. Uh, it began around the STEP Summit and has continued. Uh, of course, similar to broader COVID impacts, care workers, uh, domestic workers, home aides, um, people like that have are largely women, women of color, a huge number of immigrants in that group, uh, and they have uh, been left out uh, in many ways of the uh, the COVID relief that has come from the federal and state and city governments. Uh, and so we, the mayor wanted to make sure that we were dedicating some uh, direct assistance to them uh, to give them a chance to to uh, get on their feet uh, and 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 kind of uh, achieve some balance. Uh, that is built upon the work that we've already been doing around a rights campaign for them and a broader recognition that these are these women and, and people are essential workers in, in every sense of the word. They provide childcare, senior care, elder care. Uh, they are in many ways uh, they are one of the fastest growing workforces in the city, and we need to do a much better job of supporting them. And so that's where this that that particular fund uh, is dedicated to just that group of of people. Um, and I'm sorry, your second question was the other question was about the Clear Path relief. Ah, yes. So this is um, different in that it's not cash assistance, it's not uh, checks, so to speak, going out. It's instead debt relief. Uh, we are uh, the mayor since day one has been working to um, uh, right size our fines and fees programs. Uh, a huge portion of city revenue relies on the fact that uh, that um, individuals uh, through tickets uh, uh, and other means uh, through water bills accrue uh, a ton of debt. Uh, and what we want to do here is say, if you uh, demonstrate good faith and say that you can work with the city to uh, pay down existing debt uh, and enter this program, we will forgive some portion of that debt. You need to demonstrate income and a number of other factors. Uh, and so we can ensure that the people who are getting the help really need it and deserve it. Uh, but we are uh, very excited that uh, this is going to be something that uh, allows people to come into compliance, forgive some debt, and allows them to get back on their feet. And we have, uh, unfortunately, for a long time, heard horror stories about people who, for relatively small amounts of debt, um, through a parking ticket, through an expired city sticker, have spun that, those debts. They've accrued and doubled and tripled over time into uh, bankruptcies and, and, and loss of car, loss of income, loss of jobs. This is a program that's built upon the mayor's fines and fees work to try to give those folks a chance to come into compliance 
uh, and also uh, get their life back, while at the same time giving the city revenue to, uh, from that that it otherwise wouldn't see because folks just can't afford to pay it. Can someone apply to all three initiatives at the same time if they qualify? Or is it just one? You know, uh, yes. one. Yes. That is, uh, I had not thought about that question until you asked it, but yes, that is true. Uh, one could do that. Okay. So if you don't maybe get accepted to one, you may get accepted to another. That's true. I would say, I mean, for, for the audience who's, you know, I imagine your general audience, the, the, the city sticker relief is, is um, you know, that's a, you have to have debt to, right. to be eligible there. So, you know, it's not a, you know, if you've got debt, we want you to come find that. That right. would be great if folks did that. At the same time, they were getting a cash assistance from the city, uh, direct investment. That would be wonderful. I would, to me, a bad outcome would be there. We're, we're giving someone who uh, applied, won the lottery, and got a monthly cash assistance. They're spending that money on city debt. That right. Would that be would be outcome. horrible. That's not the purpose. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. So, so um, obviously, Chicago could, if, you know, if this pilot program is successful, Chicago could be, you know, one of the first countries in the nation to have such an extensive program, right? We um, so there are other cities that have done similar work, and we've kind of we're learning from them. Stockton, California, is probably the, the most well known. Um, L.A. and New York are looking at them. Ours will be the largest uh, by popu- by by size, um, and we think um, you know it's obviously not a it's a it's kind of a, a weird competition, right? Uh, but uh, we think uh, ours is going to be unique in that uh, we're running such a strong evaluation that will really help us determine. Uh, not just are people getting money, that's, we know that, we can track that, uh, but how is it really helping on mental health? Um, how is it helping um, on uh, their ability to keep a job? Uh, how is it helping on their ability to care for others? Things that, uh, that I think are going to be really important to, to proving the value of this kind of investment. Um, and, so, uh, and then, as I mentioned earlier, we want to use this 12-month sprint to really uh, build on and, and, and continue programs like this. Uh, and so in that sense, I think it is unique. But there are other cities, just to be very clear, that are doing similar work. And, and I'd say globally, this is in many ways kind of standard practice for large philanthropy to uh, to just give cash uh, in, the, in the African continent and elsewhere. This is pretty much how a lot of large philanthropies work, and they found it to be incredibly effective. So we're not charting new territory in terms of how to help people, but in terms of U.S. cities, uh, this would be the largest. And what do you say to your critics that say, you know, government's doing too much? Uh, I would say they need to talk to people who uh, are living on the edge and have been living on the edge for a long time uh, due to no fault of their own, uh, but due to the forces above them. Uh, And um, I'd say they need to uh, (laughs) uh, understand how effective uh, a little bit of money uh, can be to not just transform those families and those individuals, but the communities they live in uh, and the city at large. When people are living in poverty, uh, it is more expensive, uh, more damaging, more fraying of the, of the social fabric in our city. Uh, and when people are not living in poverty, everyone is better off. Uh, and so uh, I think that's, that is a fundamental premise that this mayor has taken to all of our work is uh, when we think about equity, racial and gender equity, that is not um, – that is built upon the fact that right now we do not have that. We need to acknowledge that and as a city invest our dollars in critical ways that support people who really need it. That will lift all of us. 
And if people want more information, what's the best website or where can they get information about the programs? Now you caught me on the website. Uh, Do you know that uh, we can get it to you? Uh, We just just launched it. Uh, I'm not, I don't, uh, (laughs) it's not on the top of my head. Okay, no problem. We have a website where anyone can sign up on the cash program and get updates. Um, It is, just to be clear, it is not formally, uh, the the cash program has not formally started issuing checks. The sequence here is we, uh, we're going to hire an administrator, like a third-party organization uh, that has done similar work across the country, and they will uh, actually administer. They will kind of run the lottery, issue the checks, monitor everything. We are in the process right now of selecting them with an RFP, so we'll know who they are in the next week or two. The email, uh, the website that I'll share with you is for information about when that's ready and then um, subsequent updates as that program starts rolling, including cash which we expect to start getting to people who win the lottery uh, sometime in uh, uh, early June, uh, if, if not sooner. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for your time. And, you know, maybe once things get rolling, we can do a follow-up just to see how everything is I'd going. I love that. Yeah, and you could also inter- uh, interview the, uh, well, because well selected them, the administrator, because they could yeah. also uh, help you, uh, they can kind of, you know, put a face to the organization and also explain exactly how they're going to do things. But, uh, but it will be a lottery. It is okay. not, there's no city official who's going to be deciding on a case-by-case basis who gets it and who doesn't. You can imagine why. Um, yes. that, that would not be good. No, no, obviously. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dan. Nice talking to you. And we'll check back. Yeah. Maybe like I'll check back in August or something and we'll see how things are going. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we can we can uh, we can once we have things rolling, I think, you know, again, checks should start hitting in June. Okay. Uh, it's a 12 month program. So it would be from June to June. Okay. Uh, if that's, if, you know, whatever that first check issues, that okay. begins the clock of 12 months. So we have plenty of time to talk. Okay. Sounds great. Well, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for your interest. And that'll do it for this week's Connected to Chicago. My thanks to Matt Mellon for his technical assistance. I'm Nick Gale, 890 WLS News. Connected to Chicago, a production of WLS News. Podcasts are available online at WLSAM.com.